Welcome again to our study in Philippians. Glad you're here with us. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 8, and then the first part of verse 9. Uh, all of this is uh, heavily packed with meaning, as we might expect, so taking a, not as big a chunks tonight as we often do in the past. So, glad you're here with us, and let's begin with prayer. Father, we are grateful again for your mercies to us. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have preserved it for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us all a, a deep uh, understanding as well as a deep, deep appreciation for your word, which lives and abides forever. And we thank you, Lord, that your word will do its, its work in our lives as by your spirit is planted within our hearts, our minds, and our desires, and we want to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah Yeshua. We want to be a living testimony of your greatness in each place in which we reside, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Father, help us by your Spirit to be people who show forth your goodness and who are witnesses of the great message of the gospel in Yeshua. So we trust for this. We thank you for this epistle uh, to the Philippians, which Paul wrote and which has been reserved and maintained for us. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit it would speak to each of us and that we would understand its meaning for us and seek your grace and your power to live it out. So we bless you for this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to read Philippians 3 together as we usually do. And I'm going to read it from the New American Standard Bible. And we're going to read the whole chapter, as we regularly do, so that we have things in context. Uh, I know that there are various uh, versions, uh, translations, which some like better than others. Uh, but I'm somewhat uh, sold on the New American Standard Bible. The ESV is good. Uh, the NIV has its place as well, though at times the NIV tends to be uh, at times a bit um, expansive, but uh, we're just grateful that we have these translations. And so I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible this evening, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Messiah Yeshua and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Messiah and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or the Torah, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Messiah Yeshua. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Messiah, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject all things to himself. Well, what a wonderful, wonderful uh, text, as is all of the scriptures, but it's packed just full of most important teachings that are so relevant to every one of us. And they have been relevant in every era in which God's people have lived since the writing of this epistle and since the gathering together of the apostolic scriptures as uh, an integral part of the Tanakh. And so we're grateful that we have it. I'm looking now at verse 8. And he starts out, of course, we've read the whole chapter, but he says, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Messiah. Remember, just previous to this, he was talking about the fact that if uh, one's own efforts, if one's own position in life, if one is particularly a well-accounted Jewish person, there was a time when Paul believed that that was what gave him right standing before God. And he is, he's listed that in the previous verses. But then, now in our verse, he says, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord. So Paul now gives us a very long sentence. It actually goes all the way through verse 11. Uh, We're not going to in any way get all of that tonight. But he says, uh, he gives us this very long sentence, which actually encompasses uh, verses 8 through 11. Uh, Not only does the length of the sentence indicate his fervency in expressing his point, But the sentence itself utilizes bundled phrases with vocabulary that fully emphasizes his point. He really has chosen words and phrases that make it very clear what his intention is. And his point, therefore, is obvious. Nothing in this world compares to the glory, the grandeur, and value of having obtained an eternal relationship with God through the work of his son Yeshua, brought to life by the Ruach, by the Spirit, bringing to life the gospel message in the hearts of those who are redeemed. So, this is why he starts with the phrase, more than that. The Greek, Allah menunge kai, is translated variously by the English versions. ESV says, indeed, uh, what is more is the NIV, and the KJV has, yea, doubtlessly. The obvious connection in these opening words of our verse is that to which Paul refers in the previous verse. There, in verse 7, Paul points to those things which he counted as gain, namely his sterling Jewish pedigree, as having no value when compared to his having been granted eternal salvation in Yeshua. Now, as I'll mention as we go along here, this is a very important text for all of us who are part of what has commonly been known as the Messianic movement. There's kind of a sense that is uh, deep inside those who are part of the movement uh, that somehow being Jewish, having Jewish lineage, that is, having a genealogy which points me back to my status as a Jew, as one of the people of Israel, has a value that is above those who don't have this pedigree. Now, don't get me wrong, and I'm going to make this uh, point uh, several times tonight. There is a very wonderful thing that is true, and that is that God chose Israel. God chose the offspring of Jacob 
to be a nation that he would make covenant with and that he would remain faithful to throughout their generations, regardless of whether they were uh, following him or not. Now, would he exile uh, wayward Israel to the land of their enemies? Would he allow the enemies of Israel to triumph over Israel in terms of uh, war and battle? Yes, he told them that he would. But he has never forsaken Israel, and never will he. But just to be part of Israel, just to have Jewish lineage, is not sufficient to stand righteous before him. No one, and this is the big message of our verse tonight, no one can obtain right standing with God on his or her own works, or one's own striving, or on one's uh, ethnicity. Because we know that by the time we come to the rabbinic era in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries and later, and somewhat earlier, although we don't have a lot of records that are earlier, uh, of the rabbinic uh, mindset, we certainly have, uh, the best we have are the apostolic scriptures that talk about this. But the point simply is this. God never said that the lineage of Jacob would all be eternally saved. No. In fact, Israel was to give birth to the Messiah and was to be a light to the nations. And yet Israel, oftentimes, large portions of Israel, there's always been a remnant, but large portions of Israel have rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. So, Paul is making it clear that his sterling Jewish pedigree had no value when compared to his having been granted eternal salvation in Yeshua. But now Paul goes on, not only to confess that his Jewish lineage and religious advancements among the Jewish people, etc., pale in comparison to the value of the salvation in Yeshua, but that nothing whatsoever could even begin to compare in worth or personal value to the glory of, as he says, knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord. This is because to know Yeshua far exceeds in value anything else in this world. Now, I know it may sound like I'm talking in hyperbolic language. Say, Tim, that's a pretty big statement. Yes, I know it is. But there is nothing that we have that exceeds in value knowing Yeshua. It's in Him that we live and move and have our very life, our very being. And it, it must become our purpose in life to make Him known and to give Him the honor and the glory that He deserves, to give praise and honor to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the way that we live, in the way that we interact with one another, in the way that we fellowship together in our Uh, respective communities and make known the glories of Yeshua through the life that we live submitted to Him. So Paul goes on to say, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord. In order to gain a greater understanding of Paul's words here, we must ask ourselves what he means by the phrase knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord. What does that mean? Simply to know about him? Does it mean more than that? Yes, absolutely. Does it mean to have a one-to-one relationship with him? Yes. And how do we do that? Through the work of the Spirit. Through prayer. Through the study of his word and the application of it to our own lives. This is at the very heart of what Paul longs for in this uh, epistle. To understand Paul's meaning in this phrase, we must be reminded that in the Semitic world, the concept to know someone can surely include the meaning to enter into a covenant relationship with that person. In other words, when we, in our modern English, when we say, hey, do you know such and such? That means, are we acquainted with them? Are we aware of who they are, maybe where they live or what they do? We ask that question, but when you read it in the scriptures... Its background is in the Tanakh. It's in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
Remember that if Paul is writing this, the apostolic scriptures are still being compiled, are still being put together, and much of it is still being written. So, what does it mean to know someone? It can mean, clearly, to enter into a covenant relationship with that person. We find this language, for instance, in the covenant God made with Abraham. We read this in Genesis 18, 17-19. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Now, in the NESB we read, For I have chosen him, but in the Hebrew it's the verb yada, for I have known him, so that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, obviously, if we study the scriptures, we know that God is all-knowing. So, when he says, I have known him, it doesn't mean that he didn't know about him before. So, what does it mean? This is why the NESB says, I have chosen him, because they want to give a greater emphasis on the word yada, to know. But, what does it mean to know someone? It means to enter into covenant relationship. Many of the English translations that we have utilize the English word chosen to translate the verb yada, to know, in this verse. But it is clear that the wider context of this passage pictures the covenant God makes with Abraham in chapter 15, verse 18. And this covenant relationship is summed up in the phrase, for I have known him. I have chosen him to be a covenant partner with me. An example of this covenant use of the verb to know in the ancient Semitic world, is a Hittite text recovered which uses the concept of to know to describe a covenant relationship between a great king and his subjects. Now, what do we mean by a great king? Well, in the ancient Near East, there were those societies, those uh, uh, nations, which had a great king who was the primary king, but he had under kings, and he would uh, set them in different parts of the region to make sure that his rules, that his uh, a rulership was uh, submitted to. And so, in the Hittite covenant, which uh, obviously is ancient, but it gives us an insight into the Semitic world, of which Paul was part, even though later. And here's what we read. And you, Huganus, know only the son regarding lordship. Also my son of whom I the son say, this one everyone should know. So he's telling Huganus, you must know only the Son. In other words, you shall have only relationship by way of covenant with the great king. And he refers to himself as the Son. He says, also my Son, of whom I the Son say, this one everyone should know. You, Huganus, know him. It doesn't mean know about him. It means to make covenant and to maintain covenant relationship with him. Moreover, those who are my sons, his brothers, or my brothers, know as brother and associate. Moreover, another Lord do not know, the Son alone know. And, of course, he's putting himself up as, as the great Almighty, uh, because he's a pagan and believes that he is the Son, the one who brings life to the world. Moreover, any other do not know. So this is just an example of the word know in a Semitic context, which means to submit to him, to have covenant relationship with him. Note also that in the Tanakh, marriage is spoken of as a covenant. We read this in Malachi 2, 13-14. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Here we have clear Tanakh uh, verification that marriage is to be seen as a covenant between one man and one woman. So this helps explain the use of the same verb, to know, yada, in Genesis 4.1, when Moses writes, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. <laughs> what does that mean? 
that Adam knew his wife Eve. It doesn't mean he knew about her. It doesn't mean he was acquainted with her. It means that he entered into a conjugal covenant, which is for him and her alone. So here Moses is using the word no, yada, in its covenant sense. Adam was faithful to the covenant of marriage into which he and Eve had entered, a covenant which meant he would have a spiritual and physical oneness with her, and she with him, and they would have no such relationship with anyone else. It is a vital union into which no other person may enter. As long as the two are alive and have committed themselves in marriage, it is a covenant between the two. I think oftentimes in our modern day we we don't emphasize that enough. I think it's very often that people enter into marriage as just one step beyond dating. And they don't consider it a covenant before God. But God considers marriage a covenant. And what are the penalties for breaking that covenant? They're severe, according to the Torah. And so we need to take seriously the covenants in which we have entered. And the most significant covenant is that God has made covenant with us and we with him as we have committed ourselves to faith in Yeshua, our Messiah. We are in Him by way of a covenant that God has made, has written, has enacted with us. It is with this background and use of the word no, which in the Greek is gnosko, that enables us to more fully unpack Paul's meaning when he describes his relationship with Yeshua as knowing Messiah Yeshua, my Lord. He is describing far more than only knowing about Yeshua, or even understanding the truth about Yeshua. He's telling more than even agreeing with the truth. He is describing in biblical terms the eternal and surpassing value of having been united with Yeshua through the bonds of an eternal covenant, which will never be severed, and having a true and established covenant relationship with him, which involves obedience, worship, and faithfulness in all aspects which these terms encompass. So, I think sometimes in our modern times, and I suppose this has been throughout (laughs) Earth's history, when the gospel is heard and given, sometimes it comes across as a sales pitch that if you receive Jesus as your Savior, then the the problems that you have and and difficulties that you have are going to go away and you're going to forever have this wonderful, wonderful uh, life of of being supplied with all that you need and and a great deal of what you want. Very often, I think the gospel is given in kind of a way of salesmanship. You know, back in the day when you had door-to-door salesmen, do we still have them? (laughs) I don't know. I think with the Internet, uh, the people are thinking it's not needed. But at any rate, there used to be, uh, if some of you remember, as I do, a knock on the door, and it's someone selling something, whether it's uh, dishes or whether it's uh, kitchen knives or, or whatever it may be. And they want to show you how wonderful it will be and how easy it will work and how well it will work and make you happy. Is that how we give the gospel? Well, one aspect of the gospel is that God has promised all who are his to meet their needs and to help them and to give them strength. But an important aspect of the gospel is that apart from this work that God does in the life of one that he saves, apart from that work, God is not receiving the glory he ought to receive from those who do not worship him and obey him and seek to honor him in their lives through faith in his Messiah, Yeshua. In other words, it's not just for us. Ultimately, the salvation message, the gospel message, is a call to come into covenant relationship with the God of the universe. And have we thought about it that way? 
that we are covenant members with him. Which means what? We must act and we must live to make him known as the great king with whom we have covenant. So, when Paul says this about that he would know Messiah Yeshua, my Lord, he is describing far more than only knowing about him. He is describing in biblical terms the eternal and surpassing value of having been united with Yeshua through the bonds of an eternal covenant, which will never be severed, and having a true and established covenant relationship with him, which involves obedience, worship, and faithfulness in all aspects which these terms encompass. And, of course, what are the fruit of this uh, covenant? Not only, uh, and genuinely, primarily, what is given to God by way of glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving, but in the in the context of covenant, he promises to give us what is most needed, to care for us, to help us in times of need, and to cause us to be grateful and happy and joyous in him. Remember that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, but joy is one. Do we want to have genuine joy in this life? Then we will do so as we recognize our covenant relationship with God through our Savior, through our Mediator, Yeshua. And we will seek to be true covenant members, granting Him the glory He deserves and living for Him and helping others to see His greatness. So when Paul states that he counts all things to be lost, he does not mean that all things are worthless or have no value whatsoever. He is using comparative language to express the fact that the value of having a living, active, and growing covenant relationship with Yeshua as his personal Savior and Lord has the greatest personal value in regard to all that exists in the world. This is why those who, many who have come before us in... in, uh, Decades and generations and millennia before us have been willing to give their life rather than uh, deny Yeshua. Because the relationship that we have with Yeshua is not only all-encompassing, but it has to be the focal point of our life ultimately. And that means the focal point in our work, in our pleasure, in our entertainment, in the things that we just love to do because it makes us feel good, all of that's nothing wrong with those things as long as they glorify Him, but it is to be done with Him in mind. That is, as covenant members, constantly seeking to walk in a way, to live in a way that honors Him. Moreover, because of this surpassing value, His worship and service to Yeshua has become his top priority. This is what Paul is saying. He is living and acting and growing in this relationship with Yeshua. Thus, Paul's teaching is presented to us in this text as that which ought to be the mindset of all whom God has drawn to himself and granted eternal life in Yeshua. It is a worthwhile practice to check our own progress in grace and to strengthen our resolve to give Yeshua first place in everything. As Paul wrote in Colossians 1.18, He, that is, speaking of Yeshua, is also head of the body, the ecclesia, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That has to be our desire. Are we able to do that 100% all the time? No, in the weakness of our own flesh and in our sometimes poor choices. We must seek his forgiveness for lacking in doing this, but it ought to be our goal. It ought to be something primary in our minds that he should have first place in everything. This means how we treat one another. This means how we forgive one another. This means how we help each other and how we pray for one another, and how we hold one another up, and how we see our need to be a vital part of the believing community 
For when we do this, we're giving honor and praise to the one who saved us. Now he says he counts all things but loss. The use of the word loss, which carries the sense, uh, which is uh, zemia, uh, which carries the sense of to be at a disadvantage or to have less value, is further explained by the word hupereko, uh, surpassing value, which Paul uses again in chapter 4, verse 7. We'll see this in the, in the coming chapter. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. So he's saying that he counts what he used to uh, rely upon. What was it that he used to rely upon? His Jewish lineage. How he had excelled over many others in his Jewish um, uh, learning and uh, so forth and so on. And we had the list that he, you know, the Hebrew of Hebrews and so forth and so on. And he says, now I count those as lost. It doesn't mean that they're not valuable. But what it means is they come up to no measure when it comes to the value of knowing Yeshua as your own personal Savior, as the one who gave his life for you and has granted you eternal life with him. So, he uses the same as I said in 4.7, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. So here Paul is teaching us that being assured of an unending and unbreakable peace with God exceeds our human ability to fully explain or comprehend. He says it's beyond our understanding, for to fathom the love of God and his willingness to pay the infinite price for our redemption simply is beyond our finite abilities. I know that I've said this before, but I'll just say it again here. We, as finite human beings, cannot even explain infinite The only way we can explain it is to say what it doesn't have. We really don't have the mental ability to understand what uh, infinity really is. We say, well, it has no beginning and no ending. Okay, but what is it? Ultimately, eternity for the children of God is in full and complete communion with Him, having no longer any sinful nature, but being given every ability and right to praise God for all of His goodness. So, for to fathom the love of God and His willingness to pay the infinite price of our redemption is simply beyond our finite abilities. Yet, even as Paul glories in the reality and truth of God's infinite love and mercy, without requiring a comprehensive answer to the question, why? So we who are in Yeshua likewise know God's love and grace to be real and actual, even if we are unable to give a full and exhaustive explanation. Why would God love me? Why would he give his own son for me? Well, you can say it's because his love is so great, okay. But we hardly have the ability to fathom the depth and the breadth of his love. But we certainly do know it and we understand it and we have experienced it. For by God's Spirit we have been assured that we will be received by Him and we will not be judged and left without Him. And what does the enemy always want to do? The enemy always wants to tell us, oh, you're just... You're not sure about that. You don't know. You stand before him. It might be all over. He might be say. He might say, "Depart from me. I never knew you." No, no, that's not true. That's the enemy's lie. What we must do is cling to the truth of God's word, and know for certain that Yeshua came, that he died, that he rose again on the third day, that he showed himself alive. And that by his death and his resurrection, he has paid for the sins of all who are his. And he ascended on high as the victorious one. And he promised he's coming again. And that we will see him face to face. So, we are in Yeshua. And likewise, we know God's love and grace to be real and actual. Even 
if we are unable to give a full or exhaustive explanation. Here, then, is the very place where true saving faith establishes unbreakable assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, literally evidence, of things not seen. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And oh, how we must make the priority to keep short accounts with God. When we fail, when we sin, when we do what we know we shouldn't do, whatever it may be, whether it's by overt action or whether it's simply by negligence or whatever, we come to Him in humble humility, knowing that He is grieved. The Spirit grieves when we fail to follow Him and, uh, and do what He is urging us to do, but He is always ready. God is always ready because of His Son Yeshua to hear our cry for forgiveness. And He said, that when we seek forgiveness, He will never turn us away. He always will forgive. And it is that love that changes us. It's the love of God that sanctifies us and changes us as we continue to seek to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah. He goes on to say, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Messiah. What does Paul mean when he states that he suffered the loss of all things? I mean, don't you think he would have been just willing to say, it doesn't matter, I don't care about all that stuff I've done, I don't care who I am. Well, not initially. He probably wondered what in the world. He, he is, I believe, describing the initial confrontation that he experienced on the road to Damascus. For in the very glorious presence of Yeshua, and being confronted with the eternal truth of his divine power and love, Paul recognized that the only way forward was first that of repentance. Saul, Saul, why do you continue to kick against the goads? And this is how it was described to him of all of the things that he thought were the shining, shining jewels of his life. <laughs> the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, well trained in the Torah, so forth and so on circumcised on the eighth day. All of these things were his badges of honor. And now, Yeshua appears to him and says, Why do you continue to hold on to things that have no ultimate eternal meaning? So, he recognized that the only way forward was that of repentance. What is it? What is Repentance. Repentance is agreeing with God about what is right and what is wrong, what is sin and what is faithfulness. And what is the core reality of true repentance? It is first to admit that in the sight of God, what one considers his or her own goodness is actually only pride and selfishness. All of our righteous deeds are what? Like filthy rags before the Lord, if we are thinking that by our so-called righteous deeds we gain favor with Him on our own abilities and our own works. For Paul, his personal resume of accomplishments was quite impressive from the viewpoint of fallen humanity, but in God's sight it was rubbish. This is the gift of God to those who redeems, that is, to enable them to recognize this and to willingly count as rubbish what previously was the source of self-centered pride. In fact, the word translated by the NASB as rubbish, skubala, is found only here in the Apostolic Scriptures, and it's never in the Septuagint of the canonical books. It is found once in the Apocryphal book of Sirach, in 27.4. But what does it really mean? In the other writings of the more classical Greek, it means garbage. It means refuse. It even means excrement and manure. So Paul has chosen a word that, wow, I'm sure that people blushed when they read this. 
As one commentator uh, fee notes, it is hard to imagine a more pejorative epithet than this one, now hurled at what the Judaizers would promote as advantages. Paul sees them strictly as disadvantages, as total loss, indeed, as foul-smelling street garbage fit only for dogs. I think that's well said. You could not find a word in the Greek that is more full of of just garbage, the things that no one wants to touch, the stuff that smells and you wish it wasn't around. That's what so-called good works are when someone is thinking that they're pleasing God through their own uh, initiative and through their own uh, works. Yes. But when we have come to faith in Him, and when we no longer are counting upon what we can do to gain what is eternal, when we receive it as a pure gift of His grace, then we are changed from the inside out, and we want to serve Him. And now our service, now our uh, deeds of kindness and so forth are viewed as praise offered to Him because we all know that it is by His power and by His grace that we're able to do anything that pleases Him. So why did Paul use such a loaded term? This is because the salvation that God has made through the gift of His Son Yeshua and the divine working of His Ruach is a gift which can only be received by faith as a pure and unfettered gift of His grace. What does that mean? It means that anyone who thinks they are earning God's grace is simply deprecating the very work that Yeshua has accomplished. This fact is an important truth to emphasize in all religious circles, including what might be generally referred to as the Messianic movement. Surely, we are grateful for the love of God in choosing Israel to be His chosen nation, and raising up prophets and apostles within Israel who were carried along by the Ruach to give mankind the Scriptures. Of course, Israel is God's chosen nation. But seeking to gain God's saving grace through one's own ethnic status, or by adopting practices and culture of the Jewish people, is to think that one can earn God's favor. But believing that one can add something to God's grace actually denies the very meaning of grace as applied to God's work of salvation. Again, as as Fee notes in his commentary, for Paul, it is a theological truism that grace and self-confidence are in radical antitheses. Grace plus anything cancels out grace. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It is a free gift. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. The that refers to the grace and to the faith, both not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. We are trophies if we are truly born from above. If we truly are saved by God's grace, we are trophies of what He has done, not what we have done. And when we are enabled then to live for Him and to serve Him, we give Him the honor and the glory for what He alone could do for us. Paul goes on to say, so that I may gain Messiah. (laughs) Taken out of the immediate context, this phrase sounds as though Paul had done something on his own by which he was awarded the love and salvation procured by Yeshua. But the context clearly speaks against this, obviously, that such an interpretation, and does so with powerful words. For Paul's own works, which likewise describe the works of anyone within the fallen race of humanity, have been described as refuse. He says, all of those things that I counted as valuable, I came to understand they're garbage when it comes to trying to please God. Apart from Yeshua. And therefore unable to attract, much less acquire, God's saving favor. Rather, what Paul is emphasizing here is that one cannot come under the shelter of God's eternal love and favor until he or she considers and fully admits 
that they have no ability to please God apart from His gracious and sovereign work. We come to Him with empty hands. We have nothing to bring. We only call and cry for His mercy. And He willingly gives that to us. For all that the Father has given me, Yeshua said, will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast away. For it is by His work that they admit their utter inability to praise Him and are born anew by the gift of faith. Even faith is a gift. Receiving the eternal salvation God has purchased for them through His Son, Yeshua. Then, having been made new in Him, they are enabled to walk in righteousness through the power of the Ruach and to become trophies of God's love, His grace, and His power, His omnipotence. This is why the cry of the Reformers was Sola Dea Gloria. All of it, ultimately, is for the glory of God. Now, do those who are His, do we gain the value of His love? Does it make life meaningful for us? Do we have great rewards from Him? Yes, of course. But we do so because He has redeemed us by His grace. So this is what Paul means by gaining Messiah. This becomes a reality only when we die to self, confess that in and of ourselves we have no ability to please Him, nor to win His favor, and receive by faith the gift of salvation won for us by Yeshua Himself. One author has put it this way, to know Christ and to gain Christ are two ways of expressing the same ambition. If Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, according to Colossians 2.3. To know Him means to have access to those treasures, but to know Him for His own sake is what matters to Paul most of all. He says, Now I finally have come to the point where I understand what it means to worship Him and to give Him honor and praise, and not to be patting myself on the back that I've done this or that and the other. But whatever I'm able to do, and in whatever sphere I'm able to uh, be victorious or to be successful, I give the honor to Him, for if it were not for Him, I would still be under His wrath, thinking that I'm making my own way. That's the testimony of Paul. Right there in a few short phrases in in a verse or two. And what a challenge it is for us. I hope that these words go deeply into all of our hearts and minds. And that we recognize that there's a watching world that seeks to wonder who we are and what we do and why we do it. And we can be His, His forces his people, his mouthpiece to speak forth the glories of Messiah and the gospel that he has made for all who would come to him. And so we're only going to take just the first phrase here of verse 9, and we'll continue on, Lord willing, next week at this point. But verse 9 says, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the Torah, from the law, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul now elaborates what he means in the former clause by the expression that I may gain Messiah. He utilizes the passive voice of the verb to find. I may be found. You know, passive means I'm not doing it. Someone is doing it on me. I'm being found. Thus emphasizing that to be in Him is not something that one is able to bring about himself, but that ultimately the Father fully reckons the believer in Yeshua to be in Him, that is, counted as righteous as Yeshua Himself is righteous. Oh boy, does this cause the enemy to tremble. What would the enemy love to do? To upset believers, say, no, you're, 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 you've been 
We sold a bill of goods. You're not righteous unless you can do all this, unless you can do that. And oh boy, when you sin, you're condemned. Uh, no, you, you, you're, you've been wrongly taught. The enemy hates this idea of being in Messiah. That was one of Paul's favorite phrases as we read throughout his epistles. What does he mean to be in Messiah? It means that when the Almighty sees us, he sees us within his Son, that we are united with him, as one with him, in covenant relationship, forever then, in God's sight, and in ultimately in the eternal aspects of our salvation, as righteous as he is righteous. You say, Tim, we could never be that righteous. Well, we certainly could not be infinitely righteous because we are sinners saved by grace. Our righteousness began. His has always been. But it means that the very righteousness of Yeshua has been applied to our account that all of our sins have been washed clean. And when somebody says, oh, well, then it doesn't matter what you do. No, we're new. This is the whole idea of being born again. We're new people, and what do we have as an ultimate goal? To honor Him. To thank Him. To give to Him the glory He deserves. So here, once again, Paul is emphasizing that salvation is entirely the work of God's grace, which is applied to the repentant sinner by faith, not by earning God's favor. Thus, we might understand these words to be found to mean to be seen, discovered, or proved to be. Yes. God has promised that all who are in the Messiah Yeshua will forever be treated as righteous in Him. Thus, Paul paints a beautiful picture for everyone who by faith in Yeshua is reckoned by the Father as united with Yeshua and thus participating in His righteousness. For those who are in Him are declared by the Father as having the very righteousness of Yeshua Himself imputed to them, accredited to their account. And there's a hymn which uh, Christ's grave is vacant now is the name of the hymn, and I've taken just two lines from it. Reach my blessed Savior first. Take Him from God's esteem. Prove Jesus bears one spot of sin. Then tell me, I'm unclean. And of course, it's an impossibility. He is the righteous Son of God who has always been and always will be, who is infinitely, eternally, and always completely righteous. For He is God Himself. And now, by faith in Him, we are in Him and are therefore declared righteous by God Himself. What a grand privilege we have. And this ought to encourage us and spur us on to live in a way that is a life of thanksgiving to Him for His glory, for His love, for His righteousness, that He may be seen by others for the greatness He truly is. Okay, that's where we'll end our study for this evening. And look forward to being with you again as we continue our study next week in this epistle of Philippians.